Good morning, everyone. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's Word now. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. And yet often we, when we thank you for that, we're thinking of you speaking words of encouragement, words of warmth and uh, blessing. And Father, we are aware that today we might hear words which are more challenging. But we thank you still that you speak to us. We thank you that when you discipline us, it's because you love us. It's because we're true sons and daughters. And so, Father, we do ask that you'd speak to us today, even if what we hear isn't comfortable. Father, please give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us as a church. And we do praise you and thank you that we come confident in the knowledge of that great and deep and vast love of Jesus, the love of every love the best. Amen. Well, as Lou said, we're picking up uh, Luke's Gospel again today. And Luke's Gospel is a book which is written, Luke tells us at the beginning, so that we can know who Jesus is, so that we can have certainty, so that a particular guy Luke was writing for, but us as well, can have certainty about who Jesus is. So Luke describes the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus when he rose from the dead. And we're picking up partway through in chapter 14. will come to that in a moment. But uh, as we do that, we're picking up a sort of mini-series, if you like, for the next few sessions are going to be on discipleship. What does it mean to be following Jesus? And today, we're looking at the cost in following Jesus. The Daily Mail recently reported that multitasking makes your brain smaller and could be hurting your career. Your grey matter shrinks if we do too much at once. A recent study showed that men, or found that men and women, who, men and women, I just make that clear, who frequently use several types of technology at the same time had a gray, had less grey matter in a key part of the brain. Grey matter is apparently the part of the brain that processes information. Do you know, preachers can multitask. I've got this amazing ability to talk and bore you at the same time. (laughs) And uh, just for good measure, here's some photos of an odd-looking guy multitasking. I thought I had to show you this, especially when I found a photo of a woman who I thought would be a perfect match for him. There we go. But maybe you multitask with with your phone. Perhaps you check social media or, uh, or you're messaging someone whilst having a conversation with the person who you're with. Or whilst you're in a lesson at, at school or college. Maybe, you know, I've even heard of people checking Facebook whilst they're concentrating super hard on preaching at church. Apparently that happens. But there is a problem with multitasking, isn't there? We might attempt to do more than one thing at once. Um, do more than one thing at the same time. And we might manage some of those things superficially, but we'll do none of them as well as we could have done if we'd focused just on that one thing. And even men who were widely regarded as the most competent at multitasking, even men will tell you that's true. I don't think everyone's listening. Um, Anyway, we'll come back to that in a moment. But I suspect we don't hear many sermons telling us not to bother following Jesus. But you might hear that this morning. 
You might hear that today. Don't bother following Jesus. That is, don't bother wasting your time following Jesus if you haven't first considered what is involved. In fact, the passage we're looking at this morning begins with Jesus describing two categories of people who cannot, cannot be his disciples. So let's uh, get into that. So have a, please grab a Bible, take a look at Luke chapter 14. Uh, it's on page 1048 in the Bibles lying around in front of you. And we're going to start looking at verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. And we begin with two exclusions. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. First of all, we notice there's large crowds here now. This is a a new part of Luke. Jesus is speaking to large crowds. These are people with a loose attachment to Jesus. They'd heard about his miracles, perhaps. Perhaps they'd even seen one for themselves. They want in on the blessing. Today, they're perhaps the people who follow Jesus on the fringes of church life a loose attachment to Jesus. They come to church because of what they might get out of it. Consumer Christians, we sometimes might call them. Others, perhaps, are just at the interested but not yet committed stage. Who is this man? What is it he's doing? What's he come to do? Maybe that's you this morning, interested in finding out more. Well, Jesus' words here are directed to people in your situation, interested in finding out more, just as much as they are to those of us who are already his disciples. And we might be surprised at Jesus' response to people in this category. We might be surprised at Jesus' response to people who are interested, looking into him, following him, considering following him. You see, it turns out that Jesus isn't desperately needy for followers. Jesus wants commitment, not just numbers. I would share some personal thoughts with you. When I first read these words, I don't come from a religious family. I became a Christian at university as a student, the uh, supreme university of Southampton as it was. Um, and uh, that's, that's my background. And I loved my mum and dad and my brothers, and I still do very much. How could Jesus require me to hate them? I thought when I first read these words. I loved them. How could Jesus require me to hate them? How could he even say such a thing? And how did that fit with my image of what Jesus was like? What is going on here? Well, Jesus' requirement to hate family and ourselves in these verses is not literal. It's rhetorical. He's using strong language intentionally to make an important point. And we can be certain this is what Jesus is doing and that he doesn't actually want us to hate our families or anyone for that matter because Jesus elsewhere taught that the second most important command of God is to love our neighbor as ourself, our neighbor being anyone, basically. And that, along with the first, Jesus says, sums up the entire law given to Moses in the Old Testament part of the Bible. 
Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. If Jesus actually required us to hate our families here, then you'd be completely contradicting this command to love your neighbor as yourself. And he'd be making absolutely no sense. No, something else is going on. Jesus wants those who follow him, or those who are considering following him, to understand the stakes. He wants us to feel the weight, the seriousness of what it means to follow him, the commitment that he requires. For if we are to be followers of Jesus, then we must love him so much be dedicated and committed to him so much that it's as if we hate those who are closest to us by comparison, by comparison. We've heard a lot in the news recently, haven't we, of the ship, the Hergesaka. Sorry if I've pronounced that wrong. Uh, and uh, the captain of the Hergesaka uh, was probably supposed to value the cargo of his ship very much. I would have thought that, wouldn't you? If you were a director of uh, Land Rover or, um, uh, what was it, uh, Rolls-Royce, Jaguars, all those things, the cars and there, the JCBs, you would want the captain of the Hergesaka to value the cargo very much. But when it came to it, when it came to it, he valued the life of his crew, the openness of the shipping channel, he valued it more. In comparison, you could say he hated his cargo. He hated those blingy Land Rovers and Rolls Royces. He let them get scratched and dented because he valued the life of his crew. He valued the responsibilities he had to keep the shipping lane open more. It's a comparison. But actually, for some people, this might mean alienation from their family. A first century Jewish person who chose to follow Jesus would be choosing a path of alienation from their family. It's the same today for many people who come from Muslim families or other uh, cultures too. When they choose to follow Jesus, it's often a choice which leads to being kicked out of the family or maybe even worse. You don't have casual Christians in the first century and you won't see any today in Iran or Yemen, to name a couple of places. To follow Jesus automatically led to a negative reaction, often from within the home, and such was the cost of being associated with Jesus. The choice then is real and tough. What would you do? Whose acceptance do you value most? That of your family? or the acceptance of God. You know, it can be experienced in our culture. It can be experienced, someone becomes a Christian at university in England today, and they have decisions to make sometimes. And who they're going to value most, their family, or the acceptance of God. And Jesus had picked up some of these issues back in, uh, chapter, in earlier on in chapter 14, when he's talking about groups of people who were invited to come to this great banquet but someone, one person's excuse was, oh, I've just got married. I'm more interested in my family than I am in God. 
The second uh, uh, exclusion that Jesus shows here is uh, this uh, word to carry their cross. Uh, Take a look at verse 27. Anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, sometimes we use this phrase, we don't hear it that much actually, but sometimes we use this phrase to talk about quite trivial things. Maybe I've got a cold, or I've got someone who's slightly irritating. Oh, we all have our crosses to bear. Did you hear that? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not what the phrase means. Now, you see, this was a very real thing. This was a culture where the cross was used as an instrument of murder. We know that from the end of Jesus' Uh, life, well, the death in, in Luke's gospel anyway. If you're carrying your cross, you're taking up the crossbar, the bit of wood that you're going to be crucified on. You're dead to this world, pretty much. It's more like the criminal who's on death row waiting to die. You're dead to this world. It doesn't have priority anymore. And Jesus is saying, that we need to take up our cross, we need to be dead to the things of this world, and he is the only thing that matters. It means following him in suffering, following him down that path, as the world has rejected Jesus, so he said that those who follow him would face rejection. And the figure of bearing a cross is about this willingness to bear the pain of persecution as a result of following Jesus? Is he more valuable to you than a comfortable life? It's another way to express our willingness to hate our life, to use the first picture Jesus was talking about, to hate our life in self-sacrifice. The disciple is ready to share the rejection that Jesus faced by the world. So basically here, In these two exclusions, Jesus is saying, firstly, you cannot follow Jesus if you love anything else more. And secondly, you cannot follow Jesus if you love anything else more. But this is in a context of grace. And we need to remember that. As Lou said at the beginning, we need to remember this is in a context of grace. In the verses before Jesus has been talking about the heart of the Father to save as many as would come to this great banquet and sending out servants, inviting people from everywhere. People not on the basis of them being important, but on the basis of come, celebrate. In the amazing chapter that we're going to look at next, Jesus is in this engagement with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who were mumbling and grumbling about Jesus because he eats with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus tells them these three brilliant stories, not wanting to plot spoil, but he tells them these three brilliant stories about the celebration that there is by the Father. The celebration there is by God over one person who turns and comes back. That's the context in which Jesus is saying these verses, a context of grace, a context of a God who sends out a message who invites all in and who delights when people return to him. But, but you cannot follow Jesus if you love anything else more. And also, this isn't to earn your place. We don't earn our relationship 
by our being willing to give things up. It's not about paying part of the price. I was struck uh, the other day um, by uh, a comment someone was making on the Chad Evans case. Chad Evans is a, a footballer um, who's convicted of rape. We've been trying to get signed for uh, a new football club. You've probably heard that if you watch the news or hear the news, read the papers. And I heard someone commenting on it saying, the context was that he can't go back to professional football. And someone commented on it saying that he's been punished. He's been punished. He's been to prison. He's been punished. But there's still a price to pay. He's been punished, but there's still a price to pay. He suffered the punishment of his sentence, but the price to pay was, can, he, can this man really return to public life? There's still a price for him to pay. That's not, that's not how the cross works. That Jesus paid the punishment for us, but there's still a price to pay. We have to give everything up. No, Jesus has done it all. He's paid it all. And we don't earn our place with him by our giving up of everything. It's just the right response to the one who paid it all, who gave it all for us. So there's the two exclusions Jesus gives. And then he goes on to give two explanations. So chapter 14 again, verses 28 to 33. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear let them hear. The tower here that Jesus is talking about is not like Shirley Towers or other grand structures in Southampton. Um, it's a private watchtower built to guard perhaps a vineyard or guard a house, protect your house. And these towers could apparently become quite elaborate. They might encompass a barn with some produce stored or some tools. And sitting and calculating the cost was a wise reflection and assessment. And so a potential disciple should assess whether they're ready to take on the personal... So, a potential disciple should, take on, should assess whether they're ready to take on the personal commitment... Sorry. And, uh, and sacrifice required to follow Jesus. And, and the same way, the king, there's a, there's a careful assessment of whether to get um, involved in the, in the battle. And, it, and it's foolish not to consider what it will take to be a disciple. Now, before you sack me, <laughs> I was pretending, it's blank, I was pretending to be distracted by my phone on purpose. And I wanted to make a point that some things need our full attention. Some things need our full attention. This is something a certain member of parliament got into some bother for recently. 
last month. Uh, this MP was pl- caught playing Candy Crush Saga. Anyone play that? No? He caught, was caught playing Candy Crush Saga, which is a, a mobile game, puzzle game, on his uh, taxpayer-funded iPad. Uh, during a Commons committee hearing, he was meant to be listening to some experts. And he initially admitted playing and said he was fully engaged in the meeting and would try not to do it again. But later he apologised for his behaviour. Uh, he was said to have played this for a period of perhaps almost two and a half hours in this meeting. But he said, I apologise unreservedly for my behaviour at the committee meeting and realise it fell short of what is expected of a member of parliament. I guarantee it will not happen again. You see, he needed to give his full attention to the duty that he has as a member of parliament in that committee and learn all about pensions and the stuff he needed to do. We need to give our full attention to following Jesus. He takes the priority. He is the one we give undivided attention to if we're to follow him. And if we can't do that, then Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. And so we renounce all our possessions, all our earthly attachments, all our family in the sense of not hating them, but a sense of prioritizing. And someone has said, the will to renounce all possessions and to ally ourselves totally to Jesus is the essence of discipleship. Jesus is first. He's the one object of our focus. And persevering with him means being attached to him, not to our possessions or to our family or to anything else. I wonder, as we're here this morning, I wonder if there's any things that we might be holding back. I wonder if God's Spirit is nudging you, nudging me, nudging our hearts about things that we're holding back, things that perhaps we're preferring to Jesus, that we're not giving him the priority over. You can look at the previous verses and you can see the examples, the excuses that were given of a, a field, property, oxen, or, uh, or marriage, family. Maybe uh, it's your uh, social media. Maybe it's your academic success. Maybe it's television. Maybe it is your family, your children. Whatever it might be. Are we prepared to give these things up? Are these things more important to us than Jesus? Or does he take the priority over them? What might we be holding back? And perhaps it's helpful to give a worked example of what this means. Because it doesn't actually mean that we all have to leave our family and never see them again and sell everything we have and walk around with nothing, does it? Should this mean that I sell my house and give away all my money? In many cases, no. Some cases, maybe. But we need to be also wise stewards and and be able to provide for any family that we have. We need to be able to care, perhaps say, for elderly parents. There's a a Bible command. We're called not to be idle and sponge off everyone else. And cultures vary, of course, also. In our culture, we need to make provision for the event in which we'll live longer than we're employable for. And uh, that seems to be increasingly the case, doesn't it, with the way that things are going. I've not been playing Candy Crush, but I have listened to a bit about state pensions and stuff. And uh, we need to be able to provide. 
So perhaps it's helpful to say that we should listen to our conscience as well as praying, of course. The real question is one of the heart. What is more important to me? My house or Jesus? Would I be willing to give my house up or whatever it is if Jesus called me to? Would I be willing to move away from my family if Jesus called me to? Who do I value most above everything and everyone else? Jesus won't call me to abandon my wife, but he does call me to value him more. He must have the first place in the hearts of those who follow him. Otherwise, we cannot be his disciples. And we need to consider that before we're going to follow him. You wouldn't go into an exam, well, you might do, but you shouldn't go into an exam without revising first, without preparing for it. You, if you play computer games, would make sure you've got enough health or life or whatever it's called before you go and attack some guy who you know is going to whip you. You wouldn't do these things without thinking first, preparing. You can't follow Jesus without first being prepared to lay down everything. And to give our all for Jesus is a good thing. It's a good deal. It's not a duff exchange. He's supremely worth all other things combined. He's supremely worth over all other things combined. And when we hold on to things, we're acting like the child in the slum who, who's just so obsessed with their, their mud that they're refusing to give up playing with their mud when they're offered the opportunity to go somewhere with electricity and, and water where they can wash their hands and play on an Xbox. But no, they want their mud. Jesus is supremely better than anything that he might call us to give up. And do remember that he is saying here, whoever comes. He's saying in many places, whoever comes. He says in the verses before, compel anyone to come in. Whoever comes. But we must be prepared to give everything. And for the record, Jesus isn't disappointed when someone is prepared to give up everything for him. Oh, no. Another one got in. Another one got through my tight criteria. Oh, well. Now, just read the next section. He's thrilled. He's full of joy at just one person coming to him. Finally, uh, there's one warning here. Verses 34 to 35. And what is this salt bit? A bit weird, isn't it? Verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This might seem rather random, a little bit out of place. Salt functions as seasoning in food, fertilizer, or preservative. There's three different things, not seasoning in fertilizer, in case you can't read the grammar. Um, Salt is good, Jesus comments. It has a valuable function. But certain conditions would lead to the salt losing its effect, and the unsalty salt would be cast out. It's not used for anything. It cannot even be used for its secondary functions, like fertilizer or as a preservative with manure to slow down fermentation. This unsalty salt is useless. And by adding the phrase, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, Jesus is making it clear that he's using this picture of useless salt as a warning. 
a warning perhaps to those who may begin to follow Jesus without counting the cost and realize they're unable to give something up. They lose their saltiness and become useless as a disciple. Jesus doesn't use disciples who've lost their saltiness. Jesus must have first place if we wish to follow him. If Jesus doesn't have this position, then we're not good for anything of value in terms of usefulness for God. And I don't think we can lose our salvation. Let's be clear about that. If we're truly saved, we can't lose our salvation. But one of the main evidences in the Bible of someone who is truly saved is that person endures to the end. And we do well to take seriously warnings like this one given by Jesus. Such warnings are not designed to cripple our faith, make us wobble and wonder if we're really a Christian at all. And these warnings are designed to keep our faith firm to the end. But some will go away. Some will be put off by the cost. Some will have things that they prefer to Jesus and just can't give them up. Maybe there's someone in this category here this morning. And if that's you, then you have a very serious decision to make, an immensely significant choice. And I plead with you to return to Jesus. Maybe you feel it's too late for you. You've already failed, but there's hope. Look at the Apostle Peter. He failed to bear his cross. Maybe there was a time when you weren't prepared to give everything, but what counts is now. Is anyone this faithful all the time? Really, is anyone this faithful all the time? I was really struck by Becky's story last Sunday morning. She said she feels like she's become an apprentice or something of that sort. Sorry if I misquoted you. But something like she feels she's become an apprentice. And that's a great way to understand discipleship. Disciples are learners. And in our apprenticeship to Jesus, he demands a priority in our hearts and our lives. But it's a process we learn. As we finish and prepare to go into communion, I just want to finish with a reflection on the cross to Jesus, a reflection on the cost to Jesus. You see, he asks nothing of us that he has not already given himself. He asks nothing of us that he has not already given himself. Take up the cross. He who had everything became nothing, made himself nothing. He humbled himself even to death, even to death on the cross. He took up a cross. He gave up everything. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he didn't do. And so we sing in that great hymn, When I Survey, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Maybe uh, take a moment to recommit our lives to Jesus, shall we? And think how his sacrifice, that great sacrifice, that great display of love, demands my soul, my life, my all. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Lord, please forgive us when we just get distracted by other things, other people. 
Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that it's new every morning. Thank you that we can recommit to you. We can recommit to following you and we can say that we want to choose you. Help us, Lord, to choose you. Please strengthen us by your spirit. Help us to prefer you to all these other things and to put you in the first place in our life. Lord, thank you that that's a wonderful thing to do, that we're not losing out if we do that, that we gain far more than we could ever give up. And Lord, thank you that we're only doing a a fraction of what you've already done for us. We thank you that all you're calling us to do is, in a way, a picture of what you've done for us in giving up everything, making yourself nothing, and taking up that cross. Lord, help us to see that. Please help us to see that and help us to know how true it is that that love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life.